The Bible reading this morning is from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, and it's on page 1004 of the Bible. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me, let me pray for us before we reflect on that portion of scripture. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts and minds this morning so that we might know the Lord Jesus Christ and love him and seek to serve him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if, you, if you go through the Time magazine for the last 20 years or so, I think you'll find, particularly on the cover, one person's face reoccurring regularly, and that person is Jesus. Jesus. It's Jesus' picture that keeps appearing in lots of popular culture. And what that tells you, actually, is that for lots of people in our world, believing that Jesus existed is not, not actually that harder, it's not that high a hurdle, that much of a barrier. Lots of people actually believe that Jesus as a person existed. If you would ask someone, was he a real person, certainly if you would ask a historian, Christian or non-Christian, 95% of historians, anyone worth their salt really, would agree that Jesus as a person certainly existed. He certainly lived in Palestine in about 30 AD and he did, he had a following and people followed him and lived their life in accord with him. That basic truth about Jesus exists and most people in the world will believe that truth, that a person called Jesus existed back then. That is not the definitive aspect of Jesus, see. 
who, who Jesus is is not just a question of whether he existed. There is a bigger question, though, in our culture and time of who he really was and what he came to do. And that question is, is basically the question that Mark, in his, in his account of Jesus' life for the first six or so chapters, is trying to answer. And that question, primarily the question of who is Jesus, is at the heart of this morning's passage that we just read. As you opened it, you encountered basically two groups, two stories. There's three sections to the passage, but there's two stories. There's a little section, 21, 20 to 21, uh, which is about Jesus' family. Then it shifts focus to the Pharisees in 22 through the 29 or 30-ish. And then it shifts back to the parents in the last one, 31 to 35. There's two little groups there in, in the account, Jesus' family and the Pharisees. And what we see in both of them, actually, are two groups who have misunderstood who Jesus is. You see with uh, Jesus' family, when they come in in the first story, they ostensibly think Jesus is someone who's slightly mad. Slightly mad. They say uh, they're worried about him. Verse 21, he's out of his mind. And we get the sense, actually, that the reason that they think Jesus is mad or he's out of his mind is because he's become a bit too big for his boots. They have a conception of Jesus, a view of Jesus, which fits into their small little family from Nazareth. And suddenly Jesus is this person who everyone's flocking to. They had a worldview, so to speak, of family and the place of Jesus in their family. And his life is not running in line with that. And so they have come to seize Jesus, to take him, take control of him. That's the family. On the other side are the Pharisees who we've encountered numerous times in this little series looking through the early chapters of Mark. And the Pharisees don't just think he's out of his mind, as in he's, he's slightly cuckoo. They think he's dangerous. They said he's possessed by Beelzebub. See verse 22. And what we've learned throughout the story of Mark in these early chapters is that one of the reasons they think this, they have categorised Jesus like this, they've understood him like this, is because he doesn't fit into their agenda. If it's true that for the family, Jesus doesn't fit into their worldview, their understanding of what family should be like, their family particularly, then for the Pharisees, Jesus doesn't fit into their political agenda. And so they're seeking to dismiss him. If the family is seeking to seek, seeking to seize him, the Pharisees are seeking to dismiss him. But if you combine these two ideas together, what you could say, what's common for both of them is actually they've sought to lower Jesus, to domesticate him. He's either a public figure or he's a political activist. And in either of those categories, that's a problem for them. Jesus is either a public figure, a well-known person who everyone flocks to, a bit like an Instagram figure, a social celebrity, or he's a political activist. He's, he's one of the politicians. He's stirring up a movement, and that is worrying. But either of those things, actually, what we start to see in the Gospels is that that is a very domestic, a very low view of Jesus, a very low view of Jesus. Now, here's the problem which, the, which Mark keeps confronting us with as we think about the identity of Jesus. As soon as we lower Jesus' identity, that doesn't work. It's not coherent. You know, for a lot of... I mean, more and more, one of, the, one of the comments that people make to me is not, as I said, Jesus never existed, but no, Jesus was only these things. He was a good man. He taught some really important things that we need to hear. 
or Jesus, Jesus said things that make my life richer and better. Of course, both of those things are true, but essentially what people are doing now is that Jesus is one path up a mountain to a top, to the truth itself. Jesus is one way to get there. And more and more in our culture, the, what makes us uncomfortable is any moment that we say, no, no, Jesus is saying something much more profound and challenging and confronting, which is that Jesus is the only way to get there. But over and over, the word that our culture keeps doing is saying, you can create your own version of Jesus, a Jesus who fits in with your agenda or your worldview. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. Maybe actually when you reflect on it, that's how you think of Jesus. That Jesus is actually about fulfilling a greater narrative, a greater story, a greater worldview, a greater vision of life. That he fits into that. And he's one way to get there. A good way, but one way. But you know, that's essentially domesticating Jesus. It's lowering, but more than that, it's actually intellectually incoherent. And that's actually Jesus' point to the Pharisees in verses 22 to 29 there, where he rebukes them. Because they've been saying, oh, he's possessed by Beelzebub. But Jesus says, why, if I was possessed by Beelzebub, what would I be casting out demons? That kind of kingdom, that kind of household is ultimately doomed. Jesus' point is, as soon as you try to make him something apart from who he is in Scripture, he actually doesn't fit. He's intellectually coherent. Here's what one author says. You cannot domesticate Jesus. He cannot be tamed or contained or categorized, and he doesn't fit these categories. The minute you try to put him there, you lose him. You lose him, he says. What's he mean by that? He means that as soon as you try to make Jesus someone who is part of your agenda or your worldview, you actually lose who Jesus is. You lose the true Jesus. You've come up with something that is nothing near the Scriptures, nothing near the biblical account of him. Let me, let me give you an example. Imagine a husband comes home. Actually, let me flip the roles. I'm going to flip the roles here. Imagine a wife comes home having done something, played golf all afternoon, worked, plausible, unlikely, comes home and finds her husband at the kitchen sink washing up. There are some families who are thinking implausible already, but let's go with the story, right? <laughs> she walks in, she sees her spouse washing up at the kitchen sink. Now, that suits, that suits her, that suits her, that suits her because she doesn't have to do the washing up. That's a role that's absolutely helpful. But as soon as she starts to conceive of her spouse solely in terms of that, she does violence to truth, doesn't she? First of all, it's completely unloving because there's more to a person than just that one role. There's more to their, their, their part in the family than just that one role. It's unloving, but it's also untrue. It's untrue. It's not who they really are. It's not what a husband is. It's not what a spouse is. Solely a dishwasher. But, but also, more troublingly, ultimately, that does violence to the relationship, doesn't it? Because, of course, the relationship can't be sustained on that, that limited understanding. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying, you know, in that troubling little verse, verse 29, where he talks about the eternal sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Lots of people read that and they really worry, have I done that? No, but Jesus is saying it to the Pharisees who have conceived of their own version of Jesus, which suits their agenda, and he says, you have done violence to the truth, to the work of the Holy Spirit, which is to testify to Jesus and who he really is in his word. 
And as soon as you do that, you have lost hold of the grace and mercy of the gospel. Jesus has come to give you forgiveness, but only the Jesus who is true can give you that. And as soon as you leave behind Jesus, you leave behind the grace and the mercy of God. You see, this is not simply an intellectual question, a philosophical question. This is not simply a question of whether you are on the same page as me or the other people here at St. Stephen's. Jesus' warning is important because if you leave behind the true Jesus, you actually leave behind all the benefits of the Christian gospel. You really do. You cannot take the things you like and leave the rest behind. That's the constant challenge of the identity of Christ in the gospels. So the question which, which we are asked, and I'm sure is resonating in your heart, is how do we respond rightly? How do we take Jesus truly, rightly for who he is? And Mark, as he's telling this story of these events, is aware of this. And I think in verses 31 to 35, those last verses of, of the, the reading, he's answering that question. Again, there's two groups. There are those who are inside and those who are outside. And, of course, necessarily, we want to pee the people who are inside. You look at the people who are inside. They're gathered around Jesus, they're seated at his feet, and they're doing two things. They're listening to Jesus. They're listening to what he has to teach. Uh, you know, in our old church, when we used to do kids' spots in church, uh, someone would sit on the step and all the kids would sit at their feet. Now, part of that was just kind of like crowd management. Behind the crowd management was an understanding of authority, wasn't it? We're saying, this person's, this person's in charge of this space and this moment, and what they have to say is important and worth listening to. And so when we say sitting at the feet of Jesus, that's kind of what we're talking about. We're saying we are accepting the authority of Jesus. We're accepting what he has to say. We're saying that what he has to teach us is, is powerful and not just worthwhile, but definitive in our life. So they're sitting and listening, but the second thing they're doing is they're you hear Jesus' message is not a passive message. It is not, please intellectually assent to this, what I'm saying. He says, you want to be in the family, you want to be on the inside, you do the will of God, you do the will of God. I think, I think one of the challenges of living pluralistic culture is that sometimes we give ourselves the get-out-of-jail card of all we need to do is believe, as in intellectually, is an enlightenment problem as much as anything, we just need to intellectually assent to a truth about Jesus. But right here, Jesus says, what gets you on the inside? What marks people who are in the inside is that they do the will of God. They do it. See, discipleship in Mark's gospel is always a, an active thing. It is always a choice. It is always a life transformation moment. You can't say, I'm a disciple of Jesus and... <laughs> And nothing's going to change. I'm going to believe that truth intellectually. You can't do it because you're just making the same mistake as the family members and the Pharisees. You're taking Jesus on your terms, in your agenda, to fit your worldview, to fit your meta-narrative. But over and over, Jesus keeps pressing the button. If you want to know me truly, if you want to be inside, if you really are sitting at my feet, you are hearing what I'm saying and you are doing the will of God. You're doing the will of God. Now, that's helpful, maybe. I think, actually, what's even more helpful about understanding response to Jesus rightly is looking at the people on the outside. What is it, actually, that keeps people on the outside in that little section? And you notice who's on the outside. 
Fascinating, fascinating. This is, these are some of the most fascinating verses in Mark's Gospel in terms of historicity. The people on the outside are Jesus' immediate family. His mother and his brothers and sisters. His mother and his brothers' siblings. They're the ones on the outside. Now, you know, sometimes you can look at, you can look at the Bible and think, especially the accounts of Jesus, great story, myth maybe, legend, you know, a guy lived and someone's just kind of built it up to make the whole thing sound better. Well, this is one of those moments when you read the gospel and you think, if, I was, if we were writing this, we wouldn't include this. Because the people included in this account, the people on the outside, are the people who turn out to be the leaders of the Jerusalem church. One of the people there is James, almost certainly, who is Jesus' brother, and was not a believer until after the resurrection, and then turns out to be the leader of the Jerusalem church in early church times. So as they're reading this account, as Peter's composing this, these are not anonymous people. They're not people who are still enemies of Christ. They're actually people in the church and leaders in the church. And so it's actually personally quite offensive to listen to, to what's being said. James and Mary, who at this in early church times were starting to become venerated and honoured more highly, is actually being singled out as one of the people who was initially actually outside, outside of the circle. But even more uncomfortable than just a personal reflection is culturally how uncomfortable what Jesus is saying is. Because the people who are reading this are Jewish diaspora, they're Jews, and you know what? For the Jews, family is the central unit in their culture. You know, in Genesis 2, one of the key moments is when Adam and Eve leave and form their own family. And from that moment, the family unit is central to the, the operating of the whole Jewish nation. In fact, in Old Testament law, there are so many laws about family life. The Exodus, right? When Moses is retelling the Exodus events, one of the things he focuses on is this key family moment where they all sit down to a meal and parents tell their children about what happened at the Exodus because family is key to con continuing the culture of the Jewish nation over and over again. And Jesus agrees with that because, of course, there's a, a great moment in the Gospels where Jesus has a go at the Pharisees uh, for erecting a whole heap of laws which stop people from honouring their parents. Jesus thinks family is important too. But even though he thinks it important, he is challenging something very clear about family. Repeatedly in this passage, in this passage, here is his family, his biological family, his flesh and blood, and he, he almost rejects them. He says, that's not my family. My family are the people who are doing the will of God. And if you think that that's just an outlier in the Gospels, he does it in Luke's Gospel too. In fact, he says, if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to leave your family behind. One time, and a man comes to him who's grieving the death of his father. He says, I want to follow you. I just need to bury my dad and then I'll come. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Now, of course, his point is not that funerals are unimportant, but he's saying, no, no, your prime, the primary thing, the most important thing in your life is not your family, not your allegiances, not your little units of affiliation in life, but me. Me. See, Jesus is saying, I am the glue at the heart of the Jewish culture. I am the glue. I am the thing that is most important, that is centrally important in Jewish time. And so you can imagine the early church thinking, oh, well, let's leave out verses 31 to 35. Mark, could you just 
get rid of that. We don't need to cover that. But, but he has to because this is who Jesus is. This is how he comes to us in all of his complexity and all the uncomfortableness of what he's saying. He's saying, I am the central unit. And in fact, if Mark leaves it out, you, can, you get a sense of it might have made things a bit easier to pass it on, but it would have left something so important out of Jesus' teaching and ministry. You have to accept Jesus, not in terms of your own agenda, not in terms of your own worldview or your own meta narrative. You have to accept him as he comes to you. And so it's true for the Jews. Now, sometimes when we try to take what's happening in the Bible, when we think about our lives here, we have to do a little bit of work to move things across, but we don't need to do it on this topic. We don't need to do it on the question of family. When you come to Willoughby, when we moved here, you know, I, I kind of, well, before, I, before we moved, actually, I did a little bit of work to just work out what's this place like? Because, uh, you know, if you live in the inner west, you don't know anything north of the bridge, so... But praise God for Google. <laughs> Willoughby is the family suburb. The family suburb. And I mean, all the stats bear it out, and we have great schools and parks and uh, low crime rate and yada, yada, yada. And that's why everyone comes here, right? That's why people spend millions of dollars to buy a three-bedroom house with a backyard to live in Willoughby for their family. When we moved here, actually, we had this little one-month gap between leaving our old church, coming to here. And, you know, we tried to do lots of family time. In fact, the crescendo moments, we just packed all of our boxes. We had nothing left to use for dinner that night. We thought, let's have dinner together, pizza, with this beautiful, like, selfie photo of the family eating pizza. I, that, that photo sometimes flicks up on my screensaver. And I just think, really great moment, loved it. Like, really special, really significant moment in our life. Maybe not so much in our kids yet, but for Emily and I, very significant. And um, you, you kind of, you can see why family becomes so significant to us, actually. Because lots of our significant life moments take place in family units. Whether you have one now, or you grew up in one, you know, hopefully, God willing, you've had moments in your life which have just been significant, and they've been built around family. But here's the challenge for us. Family is not the most significant unit in your life. Your blood family, your biological family, is not the most significant thing. It's not what gives you significance. You know, we live in a flat world. That's the reality. You go to work every day, you're doing the same thing, you're seeing the same people, you're dealing with the same kind of work politics. You know, you've got young kids, you're getting up, you're going through the same routine, and then you have... You know, you have this beautiful little family, you go on a holiday, you have a great family dinner, and they just feel like they've given your life some kind of significance and meaning, weightiness. It's easy to believe. It's easy to believe that your family is the most significant thing. But, you know, when you think about it, when you un unpack that thinking, it's got so many faults in it. It's got so many fault lines in it. You've heard of helicopter parenting, right? That is, that is the significant family to the extreme, right? That is, that is a parent whose whole sense of purpose and worth and value in life is found in this little kid. And, and you might know parents, or you might have been some, for whom you had this beautiful family life and then you went through the heartache, the heartbreak of your child growing up, finding a new circle. They will... They're 15, 16, 
they'll start to find other people who they think are more important than you if you're a parent. And maybe you'll get through to 23, 24, and then they'll meet a spouse or a husband or a wife, and they'll go and form their own family, and you'll wake up and you'll think, Where has all the, where's all the good stuff gone? That's what happens when family is the most significant thing. Or maybe, maybe you don't have that. And if, if you secretly believe that family is the most significant thing or you have secretly swallowed the pill of Willoughby and the, and the Sydney dream, you'll wake up every morning thinking that you are missing weightiness and purpose and value in your life. And you know, all of that doesn't even deal with the fundamental fracture in the idea that family is the most important significant thing, that every person, every person's experience is this. One person at the family table will be at the funeral of every other person. That's the truth of your family. That's the su surprising, sombre, profound truth which no one wants to talk about when it comes to family. That every family is a gathering of goodbyes. And you know, the challenge for us over and over again, is to not fall into the trap of culture which says that our family is the most significant thing. It's what gives significance to our life. And Jesus, when he's saying this, if you're feeling, it, you're feeling the discomfort of that, that's because he right now is pressing on something that is real for you. That is real for you. Now the question, of course, is how do we respond rightly? How does... How does that feel less uncomfortable for us and more true and real and good actually for us? I think, I think the answer is you need to actually be startled by something else and that's Jesus. You know, at the start of the story, as I've been reading it this week and reflecting on it, something is very startling to me is Mary's response. Think about Mary. She had this extraordinary response. She's 14 or 15 years old and she has the Annunciation <laughs> The angel Gabriel appears to her and says, you're going to have a child even though you're a virgin. And then, if that is not the most crazy experience in your life, she grows up, she raises Jesus. And we know from Luke's Gospel, she has these little moments where Jesus does things which no other kid does. She's had this whole, she's had 30 years of Jesus. And then she can't, she goes through this season where she can't handle who Jesus is. She can't handle who Jesus is. Now, I don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us clearly why Mary is part of the, the family in these little moments. Why is she not able to handle the true Jesus? But I wonder if there's a little hint there in verse 20 and 21. You know, it, it prefaces the family coming to Jesus and trying to seize him with this truth, that Jesus was so popular that he could not even eat. Could not even eat. And I wonder, I mean, I'm just wondering out aloud, I wonder if in that moment Mary's motherly instincts kick in and she thinks, I can see where my son is going. And actually it's not up, even though it looks like it, it's not up but down. That maybe actually instead of becoming popular, he's on a life of sacrifice that actually where all this is going to lead is he's going to have to keep giving up his seat at the table. He's going to have to keep going without food. And I don't like that. And that's what startles Mary. Maybe that's it. It certainly is the truth of Jesus' life 
his ministry and his death for us on the cross. That Jesus is not on an upward trajectory, but on a downward one. Jesus leaves his beautiful family, his perfect union with his Father, that great communion of the Trinity. He leaves it for us. He leaves it so that ultimately he'll be on a cross yelling, not just I hunger, but I thirst. He leaves it. He leaves his family so that we can have his family. So that our words can be Abba Father, Abba Father, so that we can have that kind of wonderful, extraordinary, deep, significant relationship. Jesus opens the doors to the great eternal family. And what he's saying is, you can actually, you can actually make your earthly family less significant because I am drawing you into deep significance, deep meaning, deep purpose, deep weightiness. I'm drawing you into my family. I'm giving you a seat at my table so you will feast with me. That is the gospel. That's where Jesus is leading. That's where his path is going. He is becoming lowly so that you can be exalted. You can be significant. That is the gospel. And you know... To the extent that you believe that, it will change your life. The first thing is, it will help you to see that your true significance is with Jesus Christ. In John's Gospel, right at the end, Mary is there. Jesus is about to die. She's at his feet again, his his bleeding, pierced feet. And Jesus says, Mary, here is your son. She points to John. She brings them together. And it's this beautiful little moment where a new family is built around Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't about leaving you alone. He's about drawing you to deep, beautiful, loving, affirming communion with God himself. He's about building a new, better, perfect family. And the more we believe the gospel, the more we'll see actually that all of our significance, all of the weightiness that we are longing for, God is longing to give us. And the second thing it will do, actually, is rather than just saying to your family, your earthly family is unimportant, it will help you. It will help you make your earthly family about significant things rather than the significant thing. It'll free you up, actually, to make your earthly family about the really significant things in life rather than always being constrained to try and make it the most significant thing. And you know, parents, this is our challenge. This is our challenge to point our, to point our children to the Lord Jesus Christ because the, he is the only one who can give them that deep freedom, that deep safety, that deep security and affirmation. But it's real, it's true, and it's on offer, and it's available to every single person. And the gospel keeps saying, let go of the things which might, in short term, even give you great joy, and take hope of the things which actually will give you deep, lasting, weighty significance in your life. That's my prayer for myself and for you. Let me pray. Kind Heavenly Father, We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who made us part of your family through his great work for us. And we pray that that truth, that wonderful truth, that Jesus Christ left it all so that we could be blessed with the great joy of being part of your family would resonate in our hearts this week. 
For those of us who are responsible for families, help us to make our families about truly significant things, to make them about you and the joy of knowing you through the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.